All right. You're going to be able to walk out of here today and amaze your friends. Because <laughs> you're going to pick up on a new thing and you say, oh, well, I know that, and it is. Um, so we're going to start off with a fancy new word. And that new word is intertextuality. Now, before your brain goes, sounds like calculus. Uh, basically, in a real quick nutshell, uh, intertextuality is simply how one prophet quotes or uses the words of another prophet. So you go to a text and they're actually quoting somebody else. And, and you say, well, wait a minute. We hear that all the time in general conference or even in sacrament meeting talk. Where somebody's going to say, I, I will, uh, you're looking too peppy. I'm going to quote Isaiah and see if I can't numb you out. <laughs> okay? Uh, but when we talk about intertextuality, it's not just the fact that prophets quote one another. It's what they do with the scriptures when they quote one another. Uh, and this is going to become important because it happens in the Gospels. And I need you to see how Jesus does it. Because Jesus is going to use the idea of quoting the prophets, but he doesn't leave them as is. He changes them. And that's kind of important ultimately because, um, well, why would it be important? First of all, let, let me ask you, why would it be important to kind of understand that, first of all, they're quoting another prophet, and then what prophet, why would that be helpful? Because there might be another rest of the story. And the rest of the story would include things like? Beyond what they were comprehending. Or yeah. Timeline. Yeah, another, why, why use this scripture at this moment for this people? And, yeah. Because the first prophet that wrote it was in a different time period and he had a different paradigm. <laughs> and maybe a different audience. And reason he was writing it. Right. And so then you're looking at it and go, well, then why would this prophet then grab that scripture said to those people and then pull it and I'm going to use it over here. But what you're going to find with a lot of uh, these kind of instances is that they will then say, but I'm going to change the scripture. Not only is it going to be, it was it used over here, I'm going to use it and I'm going to change it and present it this way. So it actually what it gives us a chance to do ultimately here is it gives us information about both scriptures and both prophets. Now, let me give you an example of that. Um, and, and this is kind of, as, as Latter-day Saints, we would recognize this one probably most quickly than any other. Uh, so here's Joseph Smith that simply wants to be able to uh, find out if his sins have been remitted since the first vision a few years later. And he's going to pray. And, he's, and, and who shows up in his bedroom? Angel Moroni. And Angel Moroni says, yep, there are some records. They're on a hill close by. And then he starts quoting scripture. But Joseph goes... You know, he quoted these scriptures, but what did he do with those scriptures? He changed them. He didn't quote it the same way that I knew them, basically. Okay? So, 
So we know this one, right? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is one of the scriptures that he quotes in talking about the Book of Mormon. It's always been kind of fascinating. We're going to talk about the Book of Mormon. Eh, let me tell you about Elijah. <laughs> you know, why is he quoting this scripture at this moment to this boy? I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the fathers to the children. Fathers, lest I come smite the earth with curse. Okay, we got that one, right? What does the angel Moroni do with that? Does he leave it as is? No, he changes it. He says, Behold, I will... This is, uh, reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the, com the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And the hearts of the children shall turn to the fathers. Okay, now. Let me just ask this question. What, what right did Moroni have to actually change the words of Malachi the prophet? Why, why, would, why would that be okay? To just say, okay, I know that's what Malachi wrote, but eh, I'm going to reverse the order of things. Uh, I'm going to change these things. What right did Moroni have to do that? Possibly, uh, it was, uh, Malachi said it differently to begin with, and it got mixed up in the translation. One of the possibilities is, is that this is exactly what Malachi said originally. That's, that is one possibility. And that Moroni was just translating it and getting it back right. Okay, I think that's a possibility. What else? Pure revelation comes from the Spirit and through the Lord, so it's being refined. So, so it was coming. So the inspiration was coming to Malachi or to Moroni. To Moroni, he's getting more. He is getting more clarity now. And. Okay, so at that moment in quoting it to Joseph Smith, you're saying that the, the Lord inspired him to say, take Malachi's words and turn them around. Mm -hmm. And what he really meant by this was this. I'd say that's a possibility. Anything else? Well, you know, the truth is there in the first one, Malachi. Yeah. Truth running through, but it's not complete. Right. And I, I see that the second is a completion of what he was saying, but in a clear, understanding way. The truth is there. The same truth. But you're saying the truth was there with Malachi, but Moroni is going to quote it and say, "Let me make it more accurate." Okay. I think that's a very real possibility. See, the answer is, so the answer is really, we don't know. But what we do know, and for, and for remember, Joseph is a Protestant. He is, he is when, he go, when he kneels down to pray that night, he is steeped in the Protestant tradition that says the Bible is infallible. The Bible is, the, the scriptures are carved in stone, and you don't change one word. This is, this is God carved in granite, almost like it came off of Sinai. 
And the first thing that he learns as his, as his religious career is beginning here is, oh, scriptures can be changed. One prophet can change the words of another, sometimes to clarify, or sometimes just to be able to uh, change it so that it meets the needs of, of a different audience. Does that make sense? That could be kind of like the uh, adjustments that have recently been made on the our temple ordinances. We could look at our, absolutely, we could say the temple ordinances are carved in stone and then we're saying as needs change and positions change that new meaning can be made because uh, I love the changes. Uh, but but it, it certainly has, a, it, it breathes a different spirit all that. So, so in other words, what we're saying is, and again, I think, I think Joseph learned this early in the process, that things can be altered under inspiration and you can end up thinking you know a scripture and it changes and and you're going to see this over and over in the New Testament and you're going to see Jesus do it now one, one example though finishing off this one though I thought was kind of fun uh, in the King Follett discourse just a couple of months before the prophet is killed he, he, he quotes Malachi but he goes back and, and quotes it exactly as it is, is in the Old Testament even though Moroni had given him a different version. But then he, so he gets done with all of that. And then he says this. I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it's sufficiently plain to suit my purposes. Joseph? Yeah, yeah uh-huh. He did. Uh, although it, the funny thing is, is even though, again, that was, and, and we're about to see this in the Book of Mormon, and, and we'll talk about that in a second, how important the King James Version was to him, but it, it's going to come out in the language, actually, of the Book of Mormon. Okay? So you taught us by the time he was giving the King Follett Discourse, the church was just being hammered, and, and they were just like... Yeah. Constantly being persecuted. I can't imagine that he would use Moroni's um, declaration versus what was in the Bible at that moment. Sometimes you're going to take a verse and you're going to use it in different places and you may use different versions of it. And he says, I could have given you a different right. translation, mm -hmm. but this will meet my needs. Right. Well, that's cool. And they didn't need any other reason to persecute yeah. By the way, I'm realizing this isn't the King Follett Discourse, this is section 124. Oh. So, mess that up. Okay. But, so, uh, look at how prophets use scripture and, use the, and look how they quote one another. And that's going to give you some insight into when we start looking at the New Testament, why Jesus said what he said and what he did with Old Testament scripture. It's one of those reasons, by the way, those of you among us that say, can we just skip the Old Testament in our, in our uh, curriculum thing here? It's like old and boring and I'm not sure about all this kind of stuff. No, that was Jesus' scriptures. We're gonna, we're gonna, we, our job is to know the Old Testament better. But Jesus is going to help us understand the Old Testament better. Okay? Alright. So, here's another one. Um... That sometimes is confusing, and it gives the critics a chance to poke holes at the church. Um, and I'm not going to go into detail, but in 1 Corinthians 13, we get this beautiful 
thing on charity. Charity never faileth and all that kind of stuff. And then what happens when we get to Moroni 7, what does, Moroni, what does Mormon do in his sermon that Moroni writes up in Moroni 7? Wait a minute. That's 1 Corinthians 13. How is it that Moroni is quoting his father Mormon from about 385 AD from an address from Paul that we think he wrote about 55 AD on the other side of the world. How does that happen? Now if you're a critic of the church, what do you say? It's, it's all plagiarism. Joseph didn't know what he was doing. He just lifted Isaiah and he lifted 1 Corinthians 13. Joseph is just cherry picking the Bible. Just rehashing it. Okay? If you are a TBM, true believing Mormon, <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the code word on social media. My, my husband is a TBM. Ah. True believing Mormon. Ah. How would you answer that? Same. Is this, is this plagiarism? Same. It's coming from the same source. Yes, but there are mistakes that are made in the Bible that when we go back and we find it in the ancient Greek, we actually can correct the King James Version. And jo Joseph copied the same mistakes. You think the Spirit would have got it right the second time if Joseph was really a prophet? Now, Brigham Young made the comment one time that if Joseph wrote, uh, translated the Book of Mormon later, it would have been different. And uh, I think that uh, this is just me thinking. Uh, when translations and stuff occur, thoughts are being put in our minds, and what's in our mind helps influence, <coughs> kind of like our dreams, you know, it, it influences what we think or hear. Sure, of sure. And that, uh, and so if we're very familiar with the scriptures, and something is conceptually the same, maybe it would be easy for us to use the same words. <coughs> Yeah, he's saying that because those, that's language we would understand, it would, that's what would kind of come out in the process of, of all of that. Now, here's the fact, we have, we, have, we have two conflicting things here. One, we have the statements of Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery and Emma, all saying, Joseph had his head in a hat and he didn't use any other sources. We don't have anything saying, even at that point, he didn't, it isn't like he had the King James Version Bible next to him. But we also have the King James Version Bible that Joseph used for the, new, the, the Joseph Smith translation. And it's all marked up and we don't even know all the marks he was making on it. Okay, if you go to Palmyra, you can actually see that, that Bible. Okay? The reality is, is that the King James Version was Joseph's language. Now, this can actually be a little bit confusing unless, unless if you'll go with me on this. Um, so we have to kind of agree and this will help us actually again launch into how Jesus used the scriptures we need to understand that there is a New Testament we have three different documents 
We have the New Testament that was written, we think, 1 Thessalonians around 52 AD, and probably the Apocalypse of John by about 90, 95 AD. So the, the, the documents that we have that make up the New Testament, the, the earliest versions of those were written in this about a 40-year span. Including the the mark the play mark mark the performance okay now the when were the gold plates written if we take in the Jaredites they're going to go about 1600 BC to about 400 AD okay that's the span of the golden plates. Now, hang with me on this. When was the Book of Mormon written? The Book of Mormon was written in 1829. It helps if you begin to look at the scriptures and go, what happened is, is that we have the Old Testament, the, the Book of Mormon prophets... Uh, writing that produce the gold plates. And there they are. When Joseph and Oliver sit down to translate translate the Book of Mormon, are they using the gold plates? The gold plates are generally sitting on the table with a blanket over them. And the inspiration about what's on those plates is coming through Joseph Smith's mind and he's, and he's giving them to Oliver Cowdery. So the Book of Mormon itself is produced in 1829. It's not a word-for-word -word translation of the gold plates. He didn't know Egyptian. So in all likelihood, was Moroni, what was, was Mormon... In Moroni 7, was Moroni quoting 1 Corinthians? No. He was writing a talk on charity. He gave a talk on charity. Now, as it comes through Joseph Smith's mind, and Joseph is going to write down what was it that Mormon was saying, what language would fit most closely what Mormon was, or what Joseph Smith was reading in Mormon? 1 Corinthians 13. It it comes very, it comes the closest to to what is that? Am I confusing it? Is that hard? In other words, if you can recognize that there was a trans there there was what the prophets wrote that it was on the gold plates. But when Joseph was translating that, that oft times the New Testament heavily influenced what he put. Because I don't think that Mormon ever quoted Paul. But it would have been the closest thing that Joseph would be able to understand. Are we alright with that? Okay. I'm not saying that it... it so it's, it's inspired, but Joseph, it had to be translated to Joseph in such a way that first generation of the church would understand it, and it would be the closest thing they would understand. Yeah. I can understand that. Oh, I like that. I like that. Say, say that again louder. I can understand it because sometimes an answer to prayer will come into my mind as a scripture that I have read before. 
sure. Mm -hmm. And the Lord says, the best way I can have you understand what you need to do or what you're feeling is, let me reach over and grab this scripture that was written by a prophet over here, and I'll put that in your mind. That's a perfect way of explaining this. Yeah, and, and you go, and it resonates. You go, oh. See, I think when that first generation of the church, they're, had, they're, they're reading this new little Book of Mormon, and they're going, they get to Moroni 7, and they go, oh yeah, charity never faileth. And yeah, oh yeah, we get this. This is familiar. This is comfortable. I think it made it much easier for, for them to understand that. But let's just make sure, So, when, but when people are saying, well, Joseph just lifted parts of the Bible and stuck them in here because he didn't have anything else to say. He needed more pages, so let's lift part of Paul's stuff. No! He's saying, the best way for me to explain what Mormon was trying to say is to use Paul's words. And we'll put them in here. And so the Book of Mormon is filled with biblical allusions. The Book of John is all over the Book of Mormon. And not because it was plagiarized, but because that was the best. Okay. Have I, have I belabored that point enough? Okay. Yeah. Can I ask a question? So my question is, then why is it important to, is it important to figure out the authenticity of the scriptures? Because we're talking about, from, in my ear, I'm hearing like it's the receiver. Who is responsible has the yeah. mental to put the scripture together, the, the receiver to dis determine what's in the scripture. But for, for us, we, we're reading all these words thousand years later. Why is it important or is it important to figure out the authenticity or is not? Yeah, the, the authenticity, the, the, they said these things, but sometimes we get confused when we're saying, I'm now going to take these words that Paul was struggling with this group in Thessalonia. And he, so he writes these beautiful things to Thessal the Thessalonians. But I've got to get up in church on Sunday, and I've got to speak to the Plano First Ward, and I've got to somehow say something, to now I've got to find a way to take those words and repackage them in a way that is meaningful to them. So it, those were authentic there, but sometimes they need to be redone in such a way so that it meets the needs of the people that we're talking about. Let me give you another example here. Um, Oh, you'll like this one. Hang with me one more piece here. Okay. L let me dispel one of, the, one of the things that we've kind of struggled with for a long, long time here. Okay. We have Mosiah 319. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam. And ever and ever. And we've tended to say what that means is that we have two parts of us. The natural man, which is bad. And, and the spiritual side of us, who is good. So we were born, so is, born, is man born naturally good or bad? Neither. Guess where, this is King Benjamin's address. Oh. Do, you know where this, do you know where this is coming from? It's actually coming from 1 Corinthians 2. 
Paul gives a beautiful discourse about, I'm not going to take time to do it, you can go back and kind of do it, but he's going to talk about that, that, we, that we go through life, this is, his, this is the summary, we go through life as spiritual beings, but we gather earthly baggage. And he calls that earthly baggage that we pick up, verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the Spirit of God. In other words, you are spirit, you were born good, you're spiritual beings. In your earth life, you gather earthly baggage, and Paul calls that the natural man. So, surprise, surprise, to have that idea expressed, those words are put into the words of King Benjamin in Mosiah 3, who's going to say the natural man is an enemy to God. And we could, if we were going to free, rephrase that today, we would say, we are born spiritually good, but we pick up earthly baggage. And that earthly baggage that we pick up is our natural man. But we are basically good people. Does that make, does that make sense? Okay. So, it's just another example of how the prophets are quoting each other, but you'll watch how they not just quote it. It's not just like we listen to Elder Bednar in conference and he lifts a verse completely out of Isaiah and he drops it and quotes it exactly. What we're saying is these prophets will take the words, change it, repackage it, put it in different terms, and they'll quote that. But they're still being influenced by the other prophet. Okay? That's called intertextuality. <laughs> so, so to, you know, again, this afternoon someone's going to say, well, how was class? And you go, well, I was learning about the intertextuality of the New Testament. <laughs> and they're going to go, whoa. Okay, that sounds a little weird. Yes, I know. <laughs> but if you have an hour, I will explain. <laughs> okay. So, here's, here's maybe the, the best way to explain this. If we go to the King James Version. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Okay? And we've talked about how much we wrestle with that Scripture. Man, that's a tough one. <laughs> I don't know about perfection and everything. Well, look at what other prophets do with that. Paul says, Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this unto you. Try and be God minded and that will make you perfect. So Paul's taking those words, which by the way, I'm not sure that Paul had Matthew's discourse in front of him because it wasn't written until 20 years later. So it would have been just something he heard verbally, maybe from James or somebody like that. Okay. When we talk about Paul, it's going to be kind of amazing what scriptures Paul had to work with. And he, and he didn't have the New Testament, and he certainly didn't have the Gospels. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. How many of Jesus' parables did Paul quote? Didn't have them yet. They weren't committed yet to writing. Okay, so, but, so there's Paul with the same idea. Okay, Luke. Luke Luke's going to give you one. He says... Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. 
I, and I, I've talked about that before that I, I believe that uh, Luke who's writing 10 years after Matthew is saying maybe the highest form of perfection is mercy if we are perfect we're merciful and the more merciful we are the more perfected we become I think that's, I think that's what Luke is saying Okay. Or we have the Wayman version. Uh, Thomas Wayman is saying, uh, therefore you will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. As he reads the original Greek, he's saying that's the sentiment that the original Greek documents are saying, that you will be perfect. That's the Wayman version. Okay. Or we have that ancient prophet, Elder Holland, who says, Be ye therefore perfect, eventually. And if you're not sure, we have that eminent prophet, Nephi, for all we know is by grace we are saved after all we can do. And even more than that, that great prophet, Al Green, who said, you are perfect to me more than my eyes can see. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just making sure we're paying attention. We got all, yeah, we're covering all the prophets on this class. We're not missing any of them. <laughs> okay, so you put all this, so, so look at what everybody's doing with the same sentiment. It depends on the, pro, on the focus or anything like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you said that maybe being merciful is being perfect, yeah. Think of all the things that are involved in being merciful. You have to be tolerant, slow to anger, be quick to forgive. I could just go on and on and on. Yeah. And all the things that the nephew can be merciful, and what he does. Yeah. There. Yeah. Um, I had a whole class at, at BYU Education Week on the fact that in the, in the Holy of Holies, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant is there. And what, what do we call the top of the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim over the top of it? That's called the mercy seat. God sits on the mercy seat. Uh, that that is, I think, to become merciful is to be perfected. I think that's God's greatest attribute. And Luke got it. And, I, and he's changing Matthew. Yeah. Kevin, are you going to include the prophet the Russell M. Nelson's latest takeoff on perfect in Come Follow Me? No. <laughs> but, but I should have. Yeah, should, yeah because... It changes everything up there. Yeah, because Elder Nelson is now taking this idea as well and then saying, you know what, I'm going to repackage Matthew's words and I'm going to even explain even more. Look at what they do. See the prophets all the all over the place are just doing this changing. So I guess I guess what I'm trying to say to you is if we've if we've approached the New Testament or scriptures simply by saying they are carved in granite and we don't change them, look at what prophets do to the same scripture based on the inspiration and their target audience and what they're trying to say. And if you'll recognize that and and look at them both, you're going to understand a lot more. Um, so, to, to summarize all of this, Stephanie, you had a... I was just going to say, uh, what, what's hitting home to me is that's what we do on Sundays. When we've been asked to give a talk, 
We are given a general conference talk, and we're supposed to pull the principles out and make it applicable, and we do it from whatever experiences we've had and our perspective. And if, like you said, if we just look at it that way, I mean, that's Absolutely, and we might even take something that they've said, but then put it in our own words. So we actually might change the words. Um, I, 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 I spoke in Elders Quorum yesterday um, on, on woundedness with uh, Elder Anderson's talk. Uh, and I didn't get around to a quote from Elder Anderson until the last five minutes. <laughs> I said, you're still waiting for the Elder Anderson quote, aren't you? Yeah. Well, no, I've been talking about it the whole time. I was just using other aspects of, of that. So that, that's a great point. Okay, so, so ultimately, how do we get Scripture then? Inspiration comes along. Prophet writes it down. But he writes it down in his own language. And now the fun starts. Because if we're going to understand that... We're also going to, there's going to be a translation that, that one group is going to translate here. But guess what? What happens when another group translates it into their language? We might get a separate version. And so what happened is, how did we get our New Testament? Well, we had, we had uh, the scholars... Um, taking things like the Septuagint and, and ancient uh, documents uh, that were written that go way back. They're going to compile all of these and ultimately the one that we have been most comfortable with is the King James Version. So King James is going to take uh, an awful lot of like William Tinsdale's stuff and, and uh, John Wycliffe's stuff and the Vulgate and the Septuagint and all these things and going to say let's make the best version that we can so we're going to create a scripture by committee which is what they did so what we're used to having what we're used to reading in the King James Version is a Bible produced by a committee that I think in all, in all honesty did a pretty darn good job the King James Version is very poetic, it's very lyrical, and it's very 16th century. That's why sometimes it's hard to penetrate. Especially, so when, when, when we're getting new translations like Wayman's Version, they're saying, let's go very back to the ancient Greek, understand what the Greek, and then try and bring that original thing forward to us. So ultimately then for us, we're sitting here on a morning trying to read something in the book of John, for instance, that again was, was produced by a committee looking at what the Greeks wrote and everything. And how are we going to understand exactly what John wanted us to understand? Inspiration. Yeah. Ultimately it's going to come from the same. We're trying to go back to the same source. Just recognize that there was a lot that went into it that got it to where we are. Okay. And that's going to be especially true when those words start passing through the minds of other prophets. So, I love this from Brigham Young. Brigham Young said, well, and actually uh, Brother Wayment, in, in producing this New Testament uh, version, uh, said that he almost had the book, he almost had it done, he sent it off to Salt Lake, and there were several... Um, he says, let me just tell you that there were, there were people in the blue chairs, 
that read it. <laughs> and the people in the blue chairs passed it to a couple of people in the red chairs. <laughs> and they read it. <laughs> Think about general conference about who sits in what chair. So there were some people in the red chairs that read it. And he says, one of the people in the red chair sent me a quote. And he says, you might want to consider including this. And he, and he sent him this quote from Brigham Young. If the Bible be translated incorrectly, and there's a scholar on the earth who professes to be a Christian, and he can translate it any better than the King James translators did it, he is under obligation to do so, or the curse is upon him. <laughs> Wayman says, I didn't want the curse. <laughs> if I understood Greek and Hebrew as some may profess to do and I knew the Bible was not correctly translated I should feel myself bound by the law of justice to the inhabitants of the earth to translate that which is incorrect and give it just as it was spoken anciently is that proper? yes I believe I would be under obligation so in essence, he's still saying we have a beautiful version of the new, of the uh, King James version, uh, but if we have a chance to translate it better, we can and should to understand it better. Are the original writings even available? I know there's a church that claims that they went back to the original writings, and they, their Bible is from the original writings. Uh, the uh, we have if you just take the, the gospel writings for instance uh, we have about somewhere between four and five thousand uh, original original documents and some of them are some of them are original in that they are first century and it may be just a few lines uh, there there's a um, there's a committee that puts together every year uh, called uh, uh, it's the Greek the some AG it's the Greek version there's a society that's taking that's combining all the papyrus that they can find together and every time they add them they add more so so yeah there is a group that takes all of these things and some of these are are first century we know some are third century uh, I am going to tell you today where the Bible forgery is. Uh, uh, that'll be the last thing we do today, so don't go anywhere. <laughs> but every year, if they find a new if they find a new papyrus, they add it to the. So, so the, what we're looking at right now is the AG twenty three. It's the twenty third version of this Greek where they're compiling all of that. But if we take also those, that's just the Greek versions. Now, if we come around and we get scriptures from the Coptics, from the Syrians, from the Babylonians, we actually have like 20,000 uh, sc scrolls and papyruses that they're trying to put together to look at. So if they have a question these days and they're translating, they're saying, well, what's the earliest one that we can find? Let's grab that one. We'll put that together with this one. But even then, some are going to be different. So they're trying to choose what is the best. So it's a great question. Okay? Uh, and by the way, one of those Syrian texts are going to play a role. Boy, we're, we're struggling to get there. Um, about what's, what's, why did the Savior get everybody angry in the synagogue in, in uh, Nazareth? Well, there's a reason. And it's how he quoted scripture. 
That's, that's where, if you're wondering where this is going, that's where it's going. I need you to know what happened in Nazareth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I haven't researched that. I just know that there is a group, and, and again, every time that researchers are finding, they think, another little papyrus or something, it all goes to this central committee, who then in the next version, they try and add that in there. We just found this one. We think that's second century, and it's, and it's quoted, it's Matthew quoted just a little bit different here, and then they will show you all the variations on all the papyruses that they're finding. So there's really great scholarship going on. Can you get to them? The Jehovah's Witness, I have a good friend, and she says, no, we have the most original Bible you can have. We went back to the original papers and, and translated in our Bible. No. So can you even get to it? Yeah, yeah, it, it's available. Um, if, if, if you're ever interested, I can get you what that document is. Uh, Thomas Wayman says that when he produced the, the, this uh, new version of the New Testament, he drew really heavily on... AG 21 and AG 23. In other words, it's just the most, it's all the ones that we're getting. And But again, remember, some of these are different. So there isn't, we, we have this sense of saying, we want to know Jesus' original words. Because that would be the most accurate. Well, the problem is the very earliest documents that we have of these are going to be like uh, 150 AD. The, the, they're just not, so we're doing, we're looking at copies of copies of copies. No. I'll find that out. You guys are asking great questions. I love the level that you're thinking. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So, for the Jews, how important were the scriptures? If we remember, we go back to the idea of the Deuteronomist, and the Deuteronomist under Josiah said, "We need to know that, that people aren't going to go bad; they're not going to become Baal worshippers. So the scriptures are going to become the most important thing. They're going to say that we've got to quote scripture. The scripture gives us authority, and it's all about the scriptures. What scriptures are they talking about?" Well, without making this too complicated, first of all, they have the law, which is the Pentateuch, is the five books. Okay, we have, we have that. Now, we think the Pentateuch was actually written in Babylon during the exile, so this is like, this is like, seventh, this is like sixth century. But they're using scrolls <coughs> that we don't have. We don't have anything that has Moses' handwriting on it. <laughs> so they had the Pentateuch. Then, okay, wait a minute. So if we're going to understand that, let's add that the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the Septuagint. That's about 3rd century B.C. So now we have all the rest of the books. Habakkuk and and first and second kings and Samuel and all those those are being added to the Pentateuch and now we get the Septuagint which is going to be this this is this is the scriptures this is what it gets opened in the book in in, in Nazareth yeah who added those and how did they get chosen ah very great question how did this what the uh, the Septuagint the, the ancestors to the, at the time of Josiah, who's writing this down? 
Who's writing it in Babylon? It's the scribes. And the job of the scribes is to write very carefully and make copies of, of the Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch and Isaiah. These scribes, and they're trying to get it really, really right, and the scribes really uh, are really part of the Pharisees. We're writing down because the Bible is everything. You don't change a word. You argue about what a word means. Part of the problem, so side note, I don't want to get too deep, but remember, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It doesn't have vowels. So it's just consonants. So when you're looking at a word, one scholar might look at one word, and, a, and another scholar looks at the same word, and depending on what vowels you put in it, it's a different word. Well, but the Pharisees were going to take those kind of things. So how do you know what is, if we've argued about those kind of things, because the Sadducees like this. We just want the Pentateuch, period, done. That's all we like. Because we can act, we have lots of wiggle room. We can do whatever, we can, we can charge way too much in the temple. And it's not written, necessarily written in the Pentateuch, we can get away with it. <laughs> the Pharisees go, no, we're going to nail this thing down. So, not only do they have that, but now you've got to have what's called the Midrash, which is Bible commentaries. These are rabbis that are going, let me tell you what, you know, second, the, the second chapter of Exodus means. That I, I, can, I know what vowels should have been in there, i got it figured out. That's the Midrash. That's the commentaries. Oh, wait a minute, but if they're coming from other places, like, like the people in Egypt, now we need translations of all of this. The, those are the Targums. They are translations of the original and translation of what the rabbi said. Okay, so now you've got all this other writing going on. You see how confusing this can get? But wait, there's more. <laughs> We're not done yet. For the Pharisees, they're going to go, well, what does it mean to do this on the Sabbath day? I don't know. Ra Ra Rabbi so-and-so says you have to do this and this and this and this. Really? Okay. Well, how do we know that we're doing it? Well, we have to put that in another What? And that, that is called the Mishnah. It's the list of rabbinic rules. Oh. Sadducees like any of this stuff? Oh, heck no. They're just doing the Pentateuch. <laughs> It's the Pharisees and the scribes that are getting caught up in all of this. And the Essenes out of the Dead Sea, they're going, we're just going to make copies of all of this stuff. Now, if you're going to have discussions about those rules, what we think it should have been, now we have one more, and that's called the Talmud. So when we're looking at, what's Jesus talking about? Well, is he drawn from the Pentateuch? Is he drawn from the Talmud? Is he drawn? The Pharisees are quoting the Midrash, and the Pharisees are quoting all of the Mishnah, and he's going, eh, no. Okay? So, it, when we talk about Jewish scriptures, it's kind of a complicated little thing, isn't it? There are all these different versions of it. 
and 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 again, it, it isn't our it isn't our idea to see how many of these we can weave our way through. It's just a matter. You just need to say that this was the when you talk about scriptures, there was a battle going on, and and by the way. Uh, if you're in a, if you're in the uh, synagogue in Nazareth, you might like one version of the midrash. But if you're in a synagogue down in Bethlehem, you might have a whole different one. Depends on your rabbi. Depends on what he likes. Depends on what he's emphasizing. And then the ones in in, in uh, the the Sadducees in Jerusalem, they might like Aristotle more than they like any of those because they like the Greek. Yeah, and they like that preacher. We like, I was, I was listening to one the other day, and, and there was a preacher that says, we preach, we are, we are Calvinist. And we preach Calvinist doctrine, which is pretty black and white. Really? Okay, and then another one says, well, yes, we do like the prosperity gospel, which says everybody should get rich. God intends you to get rich. And he intends you to have lots of money. Okay. You know, and so people are going, well, which, which church am I going to? Well, the Jews were doing that as well. Which rabbi do I like? Which synagogue? And Jesus is going to, when he returns to Nazareth, he's what, this plays a huge role. What did this, what influenced the Nazareth synagogue? And they're very, very different, and they're much different from Jerusalem. Okay, so real quickly... Um, this is um, th- th- this is the uh, in in Magdala uh, where they were actually they want to put in a they build a beautiful church and it's really dedicated to women and it's it's a beautiful experience and and in heroic size uh, when you walk into this church uh, you have uh, the beautiful painting and all you're seeing and you, you recognize the painting and all you're seeing is the feet of all of these people these ancient Jews but you see a hand reaching up and grabbing a hem of a garment and there's a little magic sparkle just as this hand is reaching and touching this hem and it's just done at such a beautiful level. It's just breathtaking. Okay? But, so they, bro- they built this church. And then outside the church, they said, we need a parking lot. So they get ready to build the parking lot. They start digging down. It's like, oh, there's old stuff here. <laughs> so they start excavating outside the church at Magdala. They start excavating. Oh, my gosh, it's an ancient synagogue. And it may be the mo- one of the most well-preserved footings for an ancient synagogue that sits right next to the church in Magdala. We know it's about 3rd century because of the mosaic um, tiles that, that are down there. That, that wasn't necessarily 1st century. Um, but if you're trying to look at kind of the inside of the synagogue, this is a replica of the one at Nazareth. Uh, we're all kind of crammed in there a little bit. But you get an idea, and, and we know what, where are people sitting? On the benches. On the benches, and where are the benches? Around the outside. We know this is how they did it in the first century. If you go to a synagogue today, uh, I've been to a wedding at a, at a synagogue, and it, it looks like this. I mean, it's just, uh, other than having the, the place for the scrolls and stuff like that. But back then, we know first century, they sit around the outside, and they had discussions. Okay?
So, so Jesus is going to come to the Nazareth synagogue. Um, Matthew. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been raised, and he came to the synagogue, according to his usual practice on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. <coughs> and the book of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, let me stop for a second. I had a, a fat, quick little discussion with a friend of mine last night. Because um, he said... Um, Jesus uh, there's a specific scripture that Jesus wanted to quote and they, they, they did this cycle uh, and so he would have known what scripture should have been written in the cycle or read in the cycle in the, and he knew exactly which one it was going to be and I said um, I don't think so you have a Jewish wife ask her <laughs> And I get an email from him a little while later. He says, yeah, he said they started doing that like third century. And I said, yeah. Which makes this even more important. Jesus got to pick his own scripture. It wasn't just because this was going to be the norm. That's, we, that's one of those little traditions that we have when we tell this story. Well, the, the, there was a sp specific reading every Sabbath, and Jesus knew which one was coming up that Sabbath, and he read that one. Uh, probably not. He got to pick this scripture, most likely. That's what makes this more impactful. Okay? So... Here's Jesus. He returns to Nazareth. Now, by the way, we know that at this point, Jesus has, has done the, the changed water into wine at Cana. And we know, we don't have the record of it, he apparently first starts in Capernaum and he starts doing healings in Capernaum. We don't have that record. All we know is that he shows up in Nazareth and they've heard of that he, what he's doing down there. So, here's, now, now it's, her, it's Sabbath. It's Shabbat. So he stands up to read. I imagine as a kid, he was probably one of their star pupils. The kids back then in, in these ancient had these little uh, groups, and, I, and I, I can't remember the, the actual name. It's like Harim, Harim, I think. Kids would study the Torah together at a at like youth Sunday school class. And I would imagine he was a star pupil. So he, got, he shows up in the synagogue, and he's going to read. So what does he choose to read? What's he going to read? Ah, well. When, well, I'll show you that in a second. When he had rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, the eyes of the synagogue were looking at him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled while you hear it. Okay? Well, what did he read? And what was it that got him so angry? Um, let's see. I've... Let me do this out of order. We have in what he read was Isaiah sixty-one. Uh, we have the King James Version in English of Isaiah 61. 
this is probably closer. This is an Aramaic version of Isaiah 61. Um, but, hold on. Before you read it, forget what you read. Let's remind ourselves who was living in Nazareth. Remember, the people living in Nazareth had originally had their homes about two or three generations back in Judea, near Bethlehem. Under the Maccabees, during the period of time when the Maccabees were the kings, they wanted to repopulate the north, so they're going to take really pious families from Judea, and they're going to go up and settle the north Galilee, including Nazareth. So these are like very, very orthodox people. They're living up there. Now, when the Romans come in, the Romans decide that they're also going to do things in the northern Galilee. So they're going to build some really monumental Roman, Roman, Roman cities. One is just over the hill from Nazareth, Sephora. They're going to build that one. They're going to build Tiberias over on the Sea of Galilee. And they're also going to build the magnificent Caesarea Maritima right on the coast. In every case, they're Roman, Roman, Roman. They are all kinds of marble and amphitheaters. And the one at Caesarea has like a horse racing thing along with a major amphitheater. Uh, they build these really Roman cities that are still there. How are they going to build them and how are they going to pay for them? One, they're going to be using the workers in Nazareth that, who do the stonework like Joseph to come and help in Sephora and in Tiberias and, and all those places. Number two, how are they going to pay for it? Taxes. Who are they taxing? This is, this is Herod Antipas's, he's the tetriarch over this whole area. So who are they taxing? The yes, the landowners, those in the northern Galilee. So not only are we building these Roman cities and we're using your workers, but we're going to tax the heck out of you to build these things so that Herod looks good to the Romans. So what do you think the, the opinion of those in the northern Galilee around Nazareth, how well do you think they love the Romans at this point? No. Now, in Jerusalem, the Sadducees are like, we love these guys. We, we, we go to the same theater, we hang out at the same gym. <laughs> in the north, they can't wait. They're waiting for that time when God will rain down vengeance and blood and attack and bring in another Judas the Hammer that's going to help us get rid of these Romans. We, we're just can't, they're just driving us crazy. And, and by the way, their Greek stuff over here is, is uh, seducing our kids. It looks too good. So, there was this sense, we really want to get rid of the Romans. So, so one of the... Um, this is the Aramaic version of Isaiah 61... You shall eat the possession of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall be indulged. Instead of your being ashamed and confounded, uh, two for one. You're going to double. 
the benefits I promise I will bring you and the Gentiles will be ashamed who were boasting in their lot. More than likely, that's the version that they understood best in Nazareth. There is a day coming these Romans will get theirs. There's a day coming, not only that, you'll get their stuff. And you'll get double portions because of everything that they put you through. The Romans are going to be as dust and they will be conquered when the, when the Messiah comes. The new King David. That would have been the understanding in Nazareth. Does that make sense? Okay. So, what, is, what does... Now, now that you have that sound, I'll read the, the... This is... He chose Isaiah 61 to quote. This is, this is the King James Version. The Spirit of the Lord, uh, God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those that mourn. That's what's in our scriptures. Now, what Jesus does is intertextuality. He's going to take that scripture, he's going to change it, and he's going to add another piece to it, and that's what he's going to read from the pulpit. That's what makes this kind of so amazing here. Because there is another scripture, Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? He's going to cobble those two scriptures together. So we'll turn some time over to young, uh, they would have known him as Joshua. We're going we're gonna to turn over to Joshua, who grew up here, and he's going to read today's scripture. The attendant hands him the scroll. He's going to open up the Isaiah scroll, and he's going to look for Isaiah 61, but he's also going to flip back, and he's going to put it together with Isaiah 58. And what's going to come out then is... Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. He's rewriting this as he goes. And finally, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, the acceptable year of the Lord, that's code word. The acceptable year of the, the Lord, we're not going to take time. It, it's referring to uh, Leviticus, and it has to do with the Jubilee year. It's the Jubilee year where uh, debts are forgiven. And, and, and the prisoners are set free. That's what happens in the Jubilee year. The thing that makes this interesting, we think the Jubilee year, if this is about 30 or 31 A.D., the Jubilee year was 25, so it was five years earlier. So he's creating a new, a new Jubilee year, in essence. 
Okay, so he's, me he's messing with the Jewish calendar and and mashing scriptures together. This is, but he's also done something very egregious. In verse two, oh, is that a? Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay, good. Verse two to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stops, and what he leaves out is the day of vengeance of our God. That got their hackles up. Because wait a minute, we're waiting for the part we're in. We're waiting for the part where the Romans get theirs. We know Isaiah sixty-one. We like that that vengeance part, and Jesus leaves it out. Not only that, this is the jubilee year where the prisoners go free. So then, and then he sits down and goes, and this is this day is proclaimed in your ears. This is happening right now. Now, I, as a side note, let me mention one other thing here. Joseph F. Smith, in section 138, when he has a vision of the celestial kingdom, or of the, of the, the day when the Savior comes, um, section 138, Behold, from among the righteous... He organized his forces, appointed messengers, clothed with power and authority, commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to the spirits of men, and thus was the gospel preached to the dead. By the way, this is different from what section 76, section 76 says that Jesus went himself. This is new information, this is new knowledge. New, new learn. But, but then he says this, and chosen messengers went forth to do what? Declare the acceptable day of the Lord and proclaim liberty to the captives who were bound. This was going to happen like this year or within the next year. Jesus was referring in a way that they didn't understand in Nazareth. He was referring to his mission to the dead. They would have missed that. They would not have understood it. And Jesus himself may not have completely understood everything that was about to roll forward here. Uh, there's a lot here. Okay, now. Um, so, so what happens next? And everyone testified, concerning, he sits down concerning him, and they were amazed at the kind words that came from his mouth. If we look at that in English terms, what does that suggest to you? Ah, oh, that's our boy. He's, he's, he's doing all this. He, that was a really good talk. Thank you so much for that. Uh, not even close. <laughs> the, 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 Greek, the, the Greek suggests on this one, Oh, were they ticked. <laughs> From the very beginning they were ticked. Amazed was like hostile. <laughs> they were upset. They were upset at these kind words. Is this, and, and, and we want to say, oh, isn't this the son of Joseph? Put that in sarcastic voice. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> this is the son of Joseph. Really? We grew up with this kid. What in the what? What is he doing? I I can't believe this. By the way, he's the son of a carpenter. He's not even the synagogue leader's son. He's not. He's not one of the Pharisees' leader. He's he's a common kid, 
and he's quoting this stuff and not and he's messing with the scriptures and he said to them <laughs> okay surely you will you will tell me this proverb physician heal yourself the things which we have heard and he's going to use it in their voice <laughs> the things we have heard were done in Capernaum do them likewise in your own country we would kind of like the magic tricks if you think you're all that do some of the stuff that you were doing in Capernaum and he says I know that's what you're wanting me to do but then he's going to take it one step farther and this is what will result what happens at the end of all this not only do they march him out of the synagogue where do they take him to the top of the rock quarry the synagogue I think was higher up here Nazareth sits on this on this sloping it's all on a hill all comes up here they would take him to the top of that rock that's where the stonings would take place gotta go where there's rocks <laughs> there was this big rock quarry where they're doing all their you take him to the top of that try to throw him out and he turns and walks somehow in the middle of them what ticked him off what got him so angry well it's this and he said Truly I say unto you that no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But in truth, I tell you that... Now listen. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when heaven was shut for three and a half years and there was great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them except the woman who was a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Okay. This area where Elijah preached and where the famine hit was primarily Gentile. So in all likelihood the widow of Zarephath was Gentile, not Jewish. It's possible that she might have been Israel, but most likely Gentile. For them to experience a miracle... He, the, the miracle that he performed, he did not perform to the Jews. The miracle he performed was to the Gentile. Now, so that they don't miss it, he gives them one more example. Let's nail this thing down, okay? There were many with leprosy in Israel when Elisha was prophet. Remember, these guys, if you're reading, if you're reading your Mishnah, if you're reading all of that kind of stuff, and you're reading your Talmud and everything, Elijah and Elisha, those are, those are two bigs. Elijah didn't save any Jews except the Gentile. And So let's talk about Elisha for a second. Oh, well. And there were many with leprosy in Israel when Elisha was prophet, but none were cleansed, but... Naaman he wasn't even in Israel he was Syrian that's what got him not only am I, perform, am I proclaiming no vengeance I'm proclaiming mercy and I'm going to let the, the captives go free but God is going to bless the Gentiles he will bless the Romans the people we hate the most. And when they, 
And when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger, and they stood and threw him out of town, led him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built, that they might cast him down from there, but he passed through their midst and went away. I think we could say that. I mean, I think that's a way that we could. Uh, God knew the heart of the widow. And the widow yeah. Naaman. Mm-hmm. And he knew that they had enough faith. Yeah, but that, that's, a, that's a hard idea to think of when you are so steeped uh, in that as the chosen people, that God will only bless us and curse everybody else. That is a that's a hard thing. So so that's why that's why and, and we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks when we go through the the uh, the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, that Jesus would cast himself as the healer in that story, but he cast himself as a Samaritan, as a Gentile, not as as a Jew. Uh, in other words, you're starting to get this sense. It's why it is that Paul was so angry at the Jewish, at the, at, at the Jerusalem saints that were having a hard time with the Gentiles. But Jesus in this case is going to say, I am here to proclaim mercy, not vengeance. That's, that's really the message to the synagogue. I'm here to let bind up the brokenhearted, whether they be Jewish or whether they be Gentile. And that was not going to fly in this Orthodox synagogue. Talk to, to the Gentile woman and said, "I like. I'm not here to talk to you. I'm not here to teach to you." And yet we've done nothing but talk about stories and going to the woman at the well. She was. I know. But the Gentile, there's such a. We have that. That was that was almost what she expected. Yeah. When we get to that, that that, that that's one of those those phrases that needs a, needs some background behind it. But it's actually a very loving interchange between the two of them, and and part of. <laughs> And part of it is addressing, you've got to look at who he's addressing. Because part of it is to, to, the, to his disciples. And, and trying to enlist them in becoming more sympathetic to the Gentiles. Yeah, there's a whole great story there. But this was a big part of Christ's mission at that very point in time. Because the Jews were all off course. They were going totally contrary to what the Spirit of, of God was about. Liken it to, you know that book you ask us to read on simply Jesus and he talks Yeah. No, he talks he, he draws this parallel with the, the perfect storm. Yes. And, and, yes. And, and one of the three factors that contributed to the perfect storm was the Jews and how they were looking for the wrong thing. They were looking for vengeance, for example. Yeah. And, and by the way, the Samaritans were actually looking for a great teacher. They're of you. Yeah, if you haven't had a chance to read Simply Jesus yet, you should. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty good. Um, okay. Um, oh, so two last things, uh, and then we're done. Um, this one I thought if, the most fascinating intertextual thing that, that I, I could find was actually Jesus quoting himself. <laughs> I thought it was kind of cool. Um, he's out in the wilderness being 40 days tempted of the devil uh, that's um, 
the, the spirit leads him out there but during that, that 40 days the, apparently Satan's not leaving him alone he's trying to catch this nip this thing before it gets started in those days he did eat nothing and when it ended he was afterward hungered and the devil said unto him if thou be the son of God command this stone to be made bread And Jesus answered, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Um, kind of fascinating. I was thinking, remember uh, the, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was when all the, all the singers got together and, and produced, We Are the World. We are the children, okay, and we're going to raise money and everything. And I love the moment when, when in their singing, they turn to Willie. Dear Willie Nelson, and his, and his line in that song is, As God has told us when he turns stone to bread. Now that, oh, Willie hasn't read his Bible much, has he? <laughs> That was kind of a fascinating line in the we are the children thing. As God has told us when he turned stone to bread. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. In fact, that was Satan telling him to do it. <laughs> Come on, Willie. I think he'd been too much ganja weed that day. Okay. Now, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Where's he getting that from? So, intertextuality says, when they're quoting scripture, you ought to go back and look at the other scripture. Because what did the other scripture say that he's quoting from? Did he change it? What's he doing with it? In this case, he simply could have said to the devil, no, I don't want to. Uh, sorry, it's fast Sunday and I'm not eating. <laughs> Thank you for offering me the cookie in Sunday school. <laughs> but it's fast Sunday. We had a high priest do that one. He, he loved to, when he taught in high priest, he loved to like bring brownies and he was a wonderful baker. And he, and he was teaching on fast Sunday one day and he goes, okay, I got the brownies. And they smelled wonderful and we're like, it's fast Sunday, Phil. <laughs> oh, sorry. What's that down underneath? <laughs> no, give it back to us. We'll eat it when we get home. <laughs> And maybe it'll make it home. <laughs> okay. Alright, so what's he, what's he quoting from? Well, the quote, I think, is, actually, is pretty darn fascinating. In, in other words, if Jesus is going to quote scripture, who's he quoting? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's like, here's the mortal Jesus, and he's quoting Jehovah? <laughs> He's quoting, yeah, he's kind of quoting his premortal self, which I think is, is just fascinating. But anyway, what's he quoting? Well, what he's actually quoting is Deuteronomy 8. But if you, if you look at what he's quoting in the line, he's, it actually has far more power to it. Look. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. Well, in those days, 40 days. And where was he? In the wilderness. Yeah, whoa. These 40 uh, years in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know that that, that that was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep the commandments or no. 
And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna that thou wouldst knewest not, speaking to the children of Israel, neither did thy fathers know that he, that he might make thee to know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth forth out of the mouth of God. Was Jesus quoting this to, to, the, to Satan? <coughs> to, to, to say, Thou shalt remember all the ways in which the Lord thy God hath led thee forty. No. Who's he? Who's he? It was given to the children of Israel. Who's it being given to right at that moment? Moses. Probably the Savior himself. Can you imagine the comfort of reading something that pre-mortal Jehovah was saying to the children of Israel, how comforting would this be to the Savior while he's fasting and being tempted by the Satan? To say, you know what, Jesus, thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God hath led for these 40 days in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep the commandments or no. I have to think this is something that the Savior had been reading and that was kind of close to him while he's trying to get ready for his mission. Kind of cool, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, um, what, I, what I'm not putting in here, and I'll jump over this, um, I do think when we talk about intertextuality, one prophet quoting another, there'll be this experience, and then the Satan throws another one, the Savior has another scripture for him, and then by the third one, what's Satan doing? He's quoting scripture. I think that's awesome. I, I love the fact that, that uh, he says, I'm going to take you up on the pinnacle of the temple and throw you off. Because you know it says in the scriptures that the angels will bear you up and not allow even your foot to get hurt. I love how Satan's quoting scripture. <laughs> and, and Jesus just says, don't tempt the Lord thy God. <laughs> So even Satan understands the importance of quoting other scripture in a different context. But okay, okay. So let's finish. Let's finish with this. We talk about intertextuality. Uh, there is a forgery in the Bible, um, and I, I went back and checked again last night. And and uh, Bible scholars are pretty universal on this one. Um, there's a moment in the, uh, in the uh, 14th century that there is a discussion going on in the church as, as uh, Erasmus is getting ready to produce some, some writings. This is like 1511. So it's actually 16th century. 15. 1511. And there's some discussions about some scholars are pushing back against the identity of the Trinity and how the Trinity works. And as he's getting ready to produce some writings, there's some pressure from the church to have him make an alteration in the Bible. So Erasmus, under pressure, goes, takes 1 John 2.5. Or First John five seven, and he adds, "For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one." 
And, and when we go back in all the Greek texts and all the papyrus and everything, this phrase does not show up in anything, anywhere, any place in 20,000s th- until the 15th century. I don't know, was it? That's what I heard. Ah, it, it could have very easily been. I was told that by a, uh, a professor at BYU. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So this is added by Erasmus under pressure to give validity to the doctrine of the Trinity around 1511. So, yeah, this was added. So, so sometimes I guess in, in uh, I don't know if you want to necessarily unveil that to, you know, if you've got a believing evangelical that's wanting to talk about the Trinity. I, I, I don't know whether that helps our cause or makes us sound more contentious. But, uh, all right. Whew. That's a lot. Now, one, yeah, go ahead. Uh, we will have uh, the English Standard Version to us sometimes just to understand King James better. And it does not have the John Lane comma. The, say, say that again. That's awesome. English Standard Version. Yeah. The SV left it out because it is so in question. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It is. Okay. So, um, so, so, so let me finish with this. Uh, we spent the last couple of weeks trying to put some context behind some of the things that, that we're going to look at. So from, from here forward, what I want to be able to do is start taking some of the, the stories and some of the parables. Uh, we are going to take some time on festivals and feasts. Uh, but I want to start taking some of the, all of this now as background to be able to say, now let's start taking a look and see the parables and the stories and Jesus' experience and why he did what he did uh, and try and put that in a different light uh, based on, on what we know. So, any final questions on any of this? You, you just kind of got a kind of graduate course in intertextuality and you did awesome. So, yeah. When do we think that Jesus really understood? Who he was. Oh. At twelve. Have you heard discussions on that? He was inspired at twelve. He says, "I'm about my father's business." Is it thirty? Let, 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 he, he says, "When did Jesus really understood who he was?" Um, there's an inter- one of the interesting things, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, because um, I don't know <laughs> the answer. I don't know um, the one. Of the, one of the Greek things talking about um, Jesus standing, uh, Jesus on the cross, saying, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani." Jesus, uh, Father, where'd you go? How come you've left me here? The 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 Greek papyrus on that is actually saying true confusion. He, he is, is truly uh, conflicted and confused and didn't, it's almost like he didn't know, he's surprised that the Father would leave him. And, and you start to maybe get a sense of the possibility, if, if we have to learn by faith, and there are going to be things that we don't know and we have to move ahead anyway, wouldn't it make some sense that, that there would be a lot of times in Jesus' life where maybe he didn't necessarily understand the whole program and he was having to move forward in some faith so that he would understand how, when, how we struggle with faith? So, I don't know. I think that it's just an interesting thought that I've been thinking about lately that says, 
did Jesus not not necessarily have doubts, but just things he didn't know yet that kind of kept... Certainly in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he seems to be a little bit surprised. I didn't know it was going to hurt this much. Okay? Yeah. Well, it just says, you know, in the scriptures, that he prays to grace. You know, we all progress. It's we all do this progression, and maybe we can give Jesus the same space to be able to say, I learn as I went along. And I think that, that's helpful to us to realize that he, he still had to struggle to know who he was. He had to, he had to exercise faith. He had to understand what it's like to be mortal. Yeah, and if, and if mortal means moving and not knowing things, I, I think in order to succor us, it makes some sense to me that he might have to have th- those same experiences. So, yeah? Jesus prayed a lot. <laughs> I think that's true. And, and how much he was being told, and then, but he was probably praying and asking questions. Now, Father, what now what do I do? Now what do I do? Oh, there's an answer. Oh. You know, so uh, that's one of those uh, fascinating questions. Yeah, last one. One scripture we always found fascinating discussions when Christ says, I only do what I've seen my father do. I can do nothing but what I've seen my father yeah. do. And so the question is, I don't want to try it like I'm out in the weeds here, but what visions did he have? Was our father in heaven a Christ? Did he see? Did he know what his father had been through? Did he... Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are good, good, good questions. Yeah, I know. Some of the early brethren had had some beliefs on that, but okay. Yeah. And he grew in wisdom and stature, and they were with God and man. Was... A progression, absolutely. Okay. Um, well, thank you for hanging in here. This is, uh, like I say, this is, uh, I, I'm, I always get to this point and I'm just amazed at you. <laughs> I'm amazed at this setting where we have a chance to dig and look in a way that we just wouldn't have in almost any other church setting to, to give ourselves the space and the time to dig in this kind of, and I think it makes us better gospel scholars. And I just, again, I just think we have a responsibility in our classes that we teach, in our family home evenings, to bring maybe a little bit higher level scholarship uh, so that we understand better. I think, it, and, and, and deep, deeper faith is found, I think, in deeper scholarship. I really believe that. So I bury my testimony that this stuff is uh, true and inspired and will lead us to understand the Savior at a much greater depth. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.